0: All right, if we can turn together to two passages, and you can be finding them, one is in 2 Timothy 4, and the other is in Genesis 12, so you can find those, and um, while we're turning, I'll just say a few things. Um, So my name is Craig Shikarji, I am from Maryland, Uh, this is not my first time here. Uh my wife and I came and I I calculated it out <laughs> based on when we got married and other things but I figured out it was about 8 years ago uh that we were here and uh I'm I know many of you uh from Bucket Week of days gone by uh many fond memories of the believers here that made uh, treks to go up to Maryland um happy memories and uh Uh, life-lasting friendships developed, and uh, maybe I should even say eternal friendships developed. Um, To those of you here who are here for the first time, a a special welcome. And let me say, uh, it's always kind of, you know, I have an awkward feeling being somewhere for the first time. But uh, please know you're among friends. Um, You've picked a very, very nice place to be this Sunday morning, and uh, a special welcome to you. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read two verses here that in some way are going to relate to this message title. The message title being The Long-Term Propagating Effects of Our Lives and Decisions. We're going to look at it both in the good and bad way. The Long-Term Propagating Effects of Our Lives and Decisions. Now, the verses that I read you're not going to know why they relate now. it's a secret and a puzzle. You're going to have to figure out what these have to do with that subject, um, but you'll find out soon. So Second Timothy four, Paul is at the end of his life, and he says this in verse seven, "I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, I have kept the faith." Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, keep that thought in mind from 2 Timothy chapter 4. And now let's go down to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, which is where we're going to spend most of our time because we're going to be looking at Abraham. And if there is a character in the Bible to look at with regard to the long-term propagating effects of a person's life, Abraham is one of the best we can turn to. Uh, The supreme example would be the Lord Jesus in terms of the ramifications of his life. And in a bad sense, we could look at Adam in terms of the bad ramifications of his life. But after those two... Abraham is about the best you could turn to in talking about the long-term propagating effects of a life. So let's look down at Genesis 12, and we'll read the first three verses, Genesis 12:1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, "'Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing.'" I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now let's read, look down at verse 10 and read something that happened to Abraham shortly after this. Genesis 12 and 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, That he said to Sarah his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a beautiful woman, a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say, she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. We'll stop our reading there. Um, and I'd like to start us off this morning with a little question. Um, the question is, when, when is the judgment seat of Christ? Now, uh, for those of you that are not um, have not had much exposure to Bible study before, um, just sit back and listen to these things. But for those of you that have uh, been been raised for many years uh, under the teaching of the Bible, we'll we'll take this as a little puzzle. Uh, When is the judgment seat of Christ? Now, I'm not meaning to be controversial here or anything like that. Uh, The reason I bring it up is that. I gave uh, at a in a camp setting, I gave some young people these cards uh, with future events. and uh, the idea is that they were to get into groups and they were to put the cards in chronological order of future events. Now, those of you who've studied future things know that even this is a controversial controversial subject because, Certain godly believers on both sides will say, well, no, this comes first and that comes later. And others say, no, this comes first and that comes later. We're not trying to get into anything controversial. But I had the judgment seat of Christ in there, which is a time when those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ in this day and age stand before the Lord and have their lives evaluated. And they have their lives evaluated not to see whether they're going to get into heaven or not. Those who are believers on the Lord Jesus Christ have that question already settled. And the Bible says that the one that believes on him will not come into judgment, but has already passed from death to life. So this particular thing called the judgment seat of Christ is something different. It's not to see whether a person who's given their life to to the Lord Jesus and received him would be saved or in heaven or not. That's not the question. The question here is a matter of rewards for how we have served him. So I I sent out these cards and the kids put them in the order that they could, the the best they could. And one group had the judgment seat of Christ occurring before the, the rapture, that is when the Lord Jesus would come and receive to himself in the air those who have believed on him. Now this was very curious to me Because even though I said it's kind of a controversial subject of some of these things when they happen, I don't think anybody puts the judgment seat of Christ before the rapture. So I was scratching my head, wondering how the group even came up with this. So I kind of asked the group, what were you thinking? But I didn't say it like, what were you thinking? I just said it more friendly, but I was thinking, what are you thinking? Uh, And to my amazement, they gave a reasonable answer. Now, I still think it was wrong, but it was reasonable. And their answer was this. Since the judgment seat of Christ is when a true believer would be evaluated in their life, they, they said this, well, okay, let's say that we're, we're living and let's say that I die today. I go and meet the Lord and the Lord evaluates my life. I have my judgment seat of Christ. And then if you die tomorrow, then you <coughs> stand before him and you have your judgment seat of Christ. And then one day at the rapture, well, then maybe those remaining will have their judgment seat of Christ. To my amazement, this actually made a little bit of sense. I didn't think there was a way to make any sense out of it. Um, But that's not how I was raised being taught. And certainly how I was taught has to be the right way, right? But it got me thinking. Is it right that we have our individual judgment seat of Christ after we die? Or is it instead that all who die and are believers on the Lord Jesus wait and we all have the judgment seat of Christ together? I may not have had the perfect verse at the time, but I do now. (laughs) The answer is the second one. All who die, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ living at this time will will go to be with the Lord, of course. But this special time of the judgment seat of Christ will wait. They will wait and all we will all have it together. Now, how do I know that? Well, the verse we read, right? Uh, Second, Timothy, four, eight, Paul said this. Uh, Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge shall give to me when at that day. And who else will receive their crown at that same day? And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. In other words, Paul is saying that he will receive his crown, but he's not going to receive it until the same event at which all who love is appearing will receive their crowns. Uh, So the answer is the second one up there. Now I have a harder question. (laughs) You say, well, wait a minute. That that one was uh, tricky enough. (laughs) There's a harder question now. Why is the judgment seat of Christ held to the end? In other words that young fellow at that camp setting who said what he said about how he thought things worked. Why not have it that way? Why should it make sense that we all wait till the end of this age when the Lord Jesus uh, will, uh, at least to the end of the church where the Lord Jesus calls to himself his own? Why why wait? And what I'm going to propose this morning and talk about is, This answer, because it is only at the end when all the propagating effects of our lives are known. In other words, it's only fitting to evaluate how we have served the Lord at the end. The Bible describes it this way, that there is a building being built, it says in 1 Corinthians 3. And this building is laid on the foundation. Well, the foundation being the Lord Jesus, but this foundation was prepared by for the church by the apostles and prophets and upon this foundation would be built a building which is a picture of the church and he says take heed now how you build on this building because at the end everyone's work is going to be made made known so if you contributed to the building of this building when do you think is the right time to evaluate your contribution when it's built Because you don't really know how your contribution has affected the building until the end. And that's what we'd like to talk about. Now, just to give you a story to um, make us all think in the same direction of what we're talking about. Um, I'll tell you a little story about a missionary. Uh, I do not know his name. He was a missionary in Syria over a century ago. Here's a man, he, he denied himself and whatever aspirations he might have had for his life, and he said, I'm going to serve the Lord with my life. And he went as a missionary to Syria and spread the gospel there. Part of the result of his work was an evangelical church was established in a small town in, in Syria. It happened to be the small town that my dad was raised in. Uh, my father was born in Lebanon, but grew up in Syria, and he and his his family attended an evangelical church in Syria. There aren't many of those in Syria, but thanks to this missionary and the Lord's blessing through his work, there was. And my dad was a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he came to the, this country in 1954 uh, when he came to this country, he first came to South Carolina and did more of his spiritual growth there. He then went to North Carolina uh, at NC State University, married uh, my mom, who was from Raleigh, North Carolina. They eventually moved to Maryland, and he was one of the founding members of Rockville Bible Fellowship, uh, where I'm in fellowship today and, and many others are now. I want you to think about this for a little bit. Uh, This is just words that just say what I just said. Um, Think about it for a little bit. This missionary who over a century century ago went to Syria, the effect of his work is being carried on now, 100 years later plus in the United States, and in some way is even affecting what's happening this morning. Because... That was the family and the assembly I was raised in and, and saved and built up in the Lord in. You understand now why a lot of the things that are done in a person's life might not have all of their ramifications seen for maybe a long time to come. And it's why it makes sense that this judgment seat of Christ would come at the end of the church when this is, the, the building is complete and then our work is seen to be known for what it is. So the purpose of today's message is it's, it's to encourage us um, to understand that we should judge nothing before the time and that God can use our efforts that may seem to have little fruit at the beginning. Possibly uh, he can use it even in generations to come. Um, now, Abraham's going to be our example. Um, he's somebody that in some ways saw little fruit in his life. But even after he died, the ramifications of his life went through many generations. Now, sadly, we have both bad and good news in the propagating effects of our lives. And we're going to see the bad news first. Um, First, the propagation of bad decisions. Now, we read this story about Abraham or Abram, as he's called then, going into Egypt, uh, which was not something he was supposed to do. But he goes to Egypt and We read the story. He's worried his wife, you know, you know, in her 60s, you know, being such a pretty woman. um, He's worried and rightly so. Uh, So even though we know from other passages that she was his half sister. It was still lying when he said she was my sister, because by saying she was my sister, he was very clearly saying what she is not my wife. And that was the the message communicated and that was the message received. Abraham knew that was what was being communicated. He, in fact, intended that to be communicated and that was what, what was received. Now, Abraham did the wrong thing. And as a result, what happened? He does the wrong thing, but he ends up being safe his wife ends up being safe. God miraculously preserves her so that she is not, not violated. He, he receives gifts from Pharaoh and is sent away whole, <clears throat> fed, intact, and unblemished from the whole event. What are we going to... What are we going to say about what he did, which was wrong? What are we going to say? All's well that ends well, right? No, no. You see, if you stop reading at chapter 12, you might think that that here was a wrong decision, but it had no adverse consequences. In fact, he came out all the better for having done it, at least so we would think. But let's look at the long term effects of his decision. The first one comes in chapter 13 and verse one. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and. Lot with him. Lot was with him when he went down to Egypt, and it turns out that lot is going to be adversely affected by what happened. So Abram made a bad decision in going down to Egypt. Uh, we may look like he it may look like he came back unscathed. But look, look carefully. They were both increased with goods and there are some references up there uh, to show that. But look at what happens with the goods. Chapter uh, 13 and verse uh, five. They had their flocks and herds and tents. Verse six. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. So we might think, well, it was a good thing they got all these possessions from Egypt, but now it's their possessions that are separating them. So Abram and Lot now have to separate. This is the first negative ramification of what he did. Uh, But now look down at verse um, a little bit more in verse 10. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, but it was well watered everywhere. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of the Lord, like the the land of Egypt. Well, how did Lot know what the land of Egypt was like? Abram took him. In other words, when when Lot went down to Egypt with Abram, Lot got a taste for the well-watered land of Egypt and now comes back and sees Sodom and says, hey, I remember how enjoyable it was down there in Egypt i'm going to seek that out and it, and those of you who know the story know that this was to his great detriment um and undoing he He goes into Sodom uh before you know it he's got a house there before you know it he's in the gates there he's a well integrated member of society, and uh God ends up destroying sodom and uh lot barely escapes by the grace by the grace of God in getting him out um, and any good he did in Sodom was was destroyed, um, his own relatives paid for this decision. Um, so all's well that ends well with Abraham and Egypt? No, there were there were propagating effects. But you know there were more propagating effects that affect us today. Uh, so it wasn't just a propagating effect on life, it was a propagating effect on the rest of the world. Uh, let 's look at this how this is so. Look at chapter 16, Genesis 16. Now Sarah, Genesis 16 and 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had a maidservant whose name was Hagar. I left out a word when I read that. Did you catch it? Yeah. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. And if you remember the chapter 12 passage we read, that of the things received when they were in Egypt was maidservants. So I'm taking it that Hagar was one of them. So Hagar is one of the lingering effects of their trip to Egypt. And Abraham and Sarah hatched this plan that they would have a child by means of Hagar. This was not according to God's plan. God promised them a child through Sarah. But They take this this matter into their own hands, and Ishmael is born of Hagar. This, of course, was not God's plan. Um, So Hagar is from Egypt, Ishmael is born, and in 1612, Ishmael is described as a wild man and a wild people to come from him. Now, much of the Muslim world uh, today traces back to Ishmael. Now, think about the long-term propagating effects of this decision of Abraham's and, and what happened with Hagar bearing Ishmael. What would life be like today in the world if there never was a Hagar with them and there was, never was an Ishmael? Do you know what life would be like today? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, none of us is smart enough to be able to figure out how the world would look today if there were no Ishmael, but we, we know it would be far different. That's all we know. So, I mean, there were definitely these um, long term propagating effects. The verse in 1612 says he shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And you think about, well, the propagating effects of the Muslim world today. I don't know how much you want to take this verse as talking about Ishmael himself Or his descendants. But it's fascinating uh, nonetheless. The world was definitely changed. By Abraham's decisions. Now. I'd like to look at. um, The flip side now. That that was the bad news. Of the propagating effects of life. I'd like to look at the good news. Uh, That's more fun. (laughs) Um, But there's good news. In the propagating effects of the life of, of Abraham. And in our lives as well. Now. In chapter twelve, look back at there, we read the first three verses, Genesis twelve, and this promise is given given to Abraham. Look at verse three. Genesis twelve three. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, Abram was given this promise that through his descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, this happened a few generations later in Joseph. Joseph came from the line of Abraham, and Joseph became the essential ruler of Egypt. And Joseph was the one who who steered them through this difficult time of famine in Egypt. And not only saved Egypt, but in, in a sense, saved the world. So in that sense, all the families of the earth were blessed through Abraham's line through Joseph. But in a much, much bigger way, all the families of the earth would be blessed through the Lord Jesus who would come to earth through Abraham's line. So this tremendous promise is given that Abraham's life is going to be a very important one because out of his life, the the descendants that flow from him will, will be a blessing to the earth. And through them and through the Lord in particular, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, did this happen? Is this true? Yes. And what did happen through Abraham's line? The Lord Jesus did come and made a way for for sinners that would have no chance of getting into heaven. And that's all of us, by the way. That we could believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive that free gift of eternal life. So, yes, the world was blessed through Abraham's line and is blessed through Abraham's line. But let's see how much Abraham saw of that. Um, Abraham had Isaac when Abraham was 100. Isaac had Jacob when Isaac was 60. That means that when Jacob was born, how old was Abraham? 160. Now, Abraham lived to be 175 so how many years did Abraham's life overlap with Jacob's 15 years now were they close I mean like did they talk a lot or were they separate and like just 15 years but they didn't really see much of each other it turns out Hebrews says that they dwelt together in tents So, so 15 years of overlap with Jacob where Abraham really did get to see Jacob a lot now, I want you to think about this um, because Jacob would not get married for many, many years later. So Abraham never saw anything of Jacob getting married or certainly not his descendants. So I want you to think about what Abraham was able to see in his life that sprung from his life. Now, he's been given this great promise in Genesis twelve three. And you look at Abraham and you say in his later days, you say, Abraham, so about this promise, how many how many sons did you produce in your life? How many children did you have now? I have to restrict this to that regards regarding this promise, not saying like Ishmael counting or or other children he he had later in his life, but concerning this promise. How many children did he have that are in fulfillment of this promise? One. Now, uh, Isaac had Jacob and Esau, but Esau was cut out from being fulfillment of this promise. So how many sons did Isaac have that are in relation to this promise? One. And that is all Abraham ever saw. Of this promise. Abraham, what have you produced with your life? One. All right. Isaac, what have you produced? One. And Abraham dies, and that's all he sees. You wouldn't say that that's the best time to judge the ramifications of Abraham's life, right? We know the story, right? I mean, Jacob had 12 sons. Now we're talking, okay? Now we're getting somewhere. (laughs) Jacob had 12 sons, and these 12 became 70 as time went on. And this 70 went down into Egypt, and this 70 multiplied and multiplied and multiplied in Egypt, To where at Passover night, even though they went in as a family, they came out as a nation. And the rest is, it really is history. Um, You know, we might have lives like Abraham's. I mean, in our life now, there's a lot more to serving the Lord than just leading people to the Lord. But I'm going to just use that as an example. So suppose you you labored your whole life in the gospel and, and at the end of your life, you look back and you find one person has been converted as a result of your bearing testimony of Christ. And suppose you looked ahead in time and saw what that one did with their life and they only produced one. I mean, we'll thank the Lord for every individual saved, but come on. Well, that's kind of like what happened to Abraham. But the story's not over, is it? We don't know know what God is going to do in the long-term propagating effects of our life. And I think there are going to be some very pleasant surprises in heaven when we find out about this. I I know of a a group in uh, Jersey City. Uh, This was about 25 to 30 years ago. It's known as the Jersey City Revival. Uh, Happened as a result of a tract given to somebody in San Diego, a guy named Angel. Uh, Angel read the tract. He got genuinely saved. He came back to his home in New Jersey, gave it to his brother named Kaz. Kaz read the tract, said what? Angel went and left it on his pillow and went into his room to pray. Kaz comes, picks up the track, finds his brother, and says, what is this? And he, so he tells him about it. Kaz gets saved. Kaz is kind of the leader of this little gang at, in high school. <laughs> so he gets into the high school. Cafeteria pops out a chair, stands on it, and says, everybody, there's going to be a Bible study here at such and such time, such and a place. I want people to be there. <laughs> people come to this Bible study. They, they, get, they get saved. They're getting saved. He's reading reading the Bible. They read the Bible together. They get saved together. They're like sheep without a shepherd. <laughs> they, they read the Bible and they find out about the thing, thing called a, a gathering as a church. They say, wait a minute, we're not supposed to be doing what we're doing. We're supposed to be part of a church. So <laughs> They study the Bible and they said, pray for us. We too are going to go find a church. So they they, they take the Bible. I don't think they physically took the Bible this way, but essentially they took the Bible with them. They go to a church. They say, tell us how you do things here. And they match it up with the Bible. Say, "Okay, thank you very much. We're going to move on. Uh, They go to another place until they find a gathering that's much like this one, but much smaller than this one. A lot of older folks, not many young people. But they meet according to the biblical pattern, like like believers do here at this at this assembly, and they they match it up with the Bible and they say well, this is wonderful. So uh, they say uh, we'd we'd like to to come out. They said well we're having a a young people's thing on Friday night. Uh, you can you can come to that. Now their young people's thing that they have. I mean, the word peoples, plural, using people like that is technically correct, you know, but barely. <laughs> you know, yeah, we have a young people's meeting. It's just barely not called a young person's meeting. But uh, yeah, you can you can come to that Friday night. So they go back. As they're leaving, a girl, uh, one of the elders, you know, a difficult assembly to be in in terms of not a lot of young people, tell them when they're about to leave, they say, you know, we've got a lot of problems here. They said, well, we've got a lot of problems too. So maybe we can get together and put our problems together and help each other. So you think about this young people's meeting Friday night, like 15 uh, of these, you know, former rough members, some gang members, chains and whatnot coming in. (laughs) Sit down, all right. Teach us. And the the Lord gave this, uh, this assembly, 15 young people, to nurture and to build up in the Lord. But these weren't ordinary young people. They were very evangelistic. This group, they're easily, uh, right now they're easily 150 people that could trace their spiritual lineage back to to what God did there in in Jersey City. Now, uh, I... I know some of them very well. Some of them moved down and were in our assembly, and uh, I know various ones well for, for different reasons. Now, why? what's my point in saying all that? What's my point in saying all that? The guy in San Diego who handed that tract out to this guy named Angel has no idea to this day what the Lord did with it. he's going to find out one day what the Lord did with it judge nothing before the time Um, within Abraham's life he saw little fruit in terms of his physical line but that was not the end and the same is true concerning spiritual fruit in countless lives throughout the century of this church Um, let's talk about a guy named August Frank by show of hands how many of you know who August Frank is not not No relation to Anne Frank of. No. okay. All right. Forget August Frank. Let's not talk about August Frank then. Um, Let's talk about George Mueller. All right. Any for George Mueller. All right. George Mueller. All right. Good. Good. Um, George Mueller, as you know, um, started an orphanage in Bristol, England. Uh, Here are a group of people at his orphanage. Uh, This is not like graduates that had at one time been in his orphanage. That would have been a much bigger picture. These are people who were all there at the time the picture was taken. Uh, at one time, there were 2,000 people in five enormous buildings built um, to, to raise these orphans at a time when it was much needed in England. <laughs> who is George Mueller? And interestingly, he was a penniless man. He didn't have any money. He said, how did he do this without any money? Well, the Lord did it through him. And he he understood by the Lord's leading that he would start this orphanage. And it didn't start this big. Uh, but he said, if it's the Lord's work, he'll supply, he will supply the, the needs. And, and he would pray at times. They didn't know where the next meal was going to come from. But the Lord was always faithful and always provided. And. He he wrote this what's called he called a narrative. It basically, he wrote down kind of a diary of what happened, how that different times they had no funds and that they prayed about it and how the Lord would would meet it. So here's George Mueller and his orphanages. Um, you say, well, that was a great work and it affected many people, but it affected more than you know. Uh, it first of all. Other people read of what, what he did. People all around the world said, wait a minute. If, if George Mueller was able to do this with the help of God, we have the same God. And, and they began to pray and other orphanages were open. As far as Japan, there was an orphanage open based on what George Mueller did. Um, many of you know that Hudson Taylor, who went on to found China Inland Missions and was a missionary himself to China, Uh, was affected greatly by George Mueller in his orphanage. He went to visit him. He saw what was being done. He saw the faith in George Mueller and said, that is the way I want to to rely on the Lord in my work. And that was a tremendous work that Hudson Taylor did. And so much happened as a result of him. Uh, The orphans went on that were in his orphanage to have their own ministry, uh, And George Mueller, in his later days, traveled a lot, came to the United States, was in San Francisco addressing uh, a crowd. And some guy comes up to him and says, hi, George Mueller. He says, hi. It's like, well, I was one of your orphans. He's like, oh, well, well, great. He's like, yeah, I'm uh, and he was leading uh, a leader in a church uh, there in San Francisco going on to serve the Lord and was was raised in the environment where he heard the word of God because of George Mueller. And so they're going on doing things. Um, there was something called the Ireland Revival that occurred because of this. Uh, a believer in Ireland uh, was reading again what the Lord did through through George Mueller. Said, "I have the same God. I should start praying like George Mueller." He prayed that he prayed for for souls to be saved in Ireland. Well, he met another believer. They both started praying together. Those two met two more believers. They started praying together. Now, this was all people who were already saved, just finding each other. But they began to pray, and they saw their first convert uh, a a month or two later. I think it was in January of a year. By the end of that year that the first one was saved, it is estimated that 100,000 people were saved uh, it's called uh, the Ulster Revival. They even still have a Facebook page today. This happened way back 1859, I think. But it, it, it's, they have, still have a Facebook page today of, of the ongoing effects of the Ulster Revival. Uh, somebody said it was the greatest Christian thing to happen to Ireland since Christianity itself came to Ireland. Um, and his propagating effects go to me also. Uh, I've been affected in a positive way. Well, intre- and, and it doesn't stop now, right? The other orphanages, they have their own propagating effects. And Hudson Taylor has his own propagating effects. And the Orphans Ministries and the Ireland Revival. You get the picture, right? When is the right time to evaluate how George Mueller built into this building called the church? When he died? No when the church is finished. Mueller's building on the foundation cannot be evaluated until the end of the church. So it makes sense that the judgment seat of Christ would be would wait till the end of the church. I would like to say something about this man that I mentioned earlier, August Frank. Now August Frank lived far earlier than George Mueller. August Frank lived in the 1600s and some into the 1700s. So he lived over 100 years before George Mueller. I I did not know August Frank personally, but do you know what he did in his life? He started a little orphanage. Wasn't nearly the scale of what George Mueller did, but he started a little orphanage as a believer, thought that that's what God would have him to do and relied on God to supply the needs. It turned out that the orphanage ended at some point. August Frank died and um, years went on. But you know what remained was that building of August Frank's orphanage. And it was used, it was next to a place called Hale University, and I'm probably saying that wrong, but George Mueller goes to this university and he's, on hard times financially and there's assisted living in this place, or I think it was that he got sick and had to be in that place, but in either case, he goes into this building to stay and learns while he's there that the building used to be an orphanage. He's like, yeah, interesting, this building used to be an orphanage. Yeah, started by this guy named August Frank. Okay, so he learns a little bit about that. He he investigates a little more and said, This is fascinating. This guy, August Frank, started an orphanage, relied on the Lord for his provisions. Hmm. Well, nothing happens in George Mueller's life for a little while, but some years later, when the Lord is leading George Mueller to start an orphanage, George Mueller understands where the Lord is going and he says, Are you wanting me? to start an orphanage the way August Frank did? You see, when August Frank died, I'm sure that he had no clue that when the orphanage ended, his work would still have effect on people. Think about that. The orphanage ends and everything is dormant for decades and decades and decades. You look at it and you don't see anything else Coming as a result of August Frank's life. And you finally say, okay, uh, the dust has settled, everything that he, all right, now you can evaluate what he has done. No, you can't. Because even though things were dormant for all that time, George Mueller comes along and the propagating effects of August Frank's life affect George Mueller and all that that followed. Eh, Be encouraged. Um, I'll leave with two verses. Judge nothing before the time. First Corinthians four five says, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Um, there are going to be some surprises in the end. And uh, this next verse, it's a half a verse. When you see it, you're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, we know that verse. Um, but think about it in the light of what we've been talking about uh, and what God can do with what's offered to him. First uh, Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We don't know what he's going to do with what we what we offer him. The long term propagating effects of our lives and decisions. Our father. We know that you could have saved us and taken us to heaven immediately and that you could accomplish work you need to do here on this earth without us. But we thank you that we as who genuinely come to you for salvation and receive the Lord Jesus Christ and believe on him. We thank you that we can then go on uh, to do service for you. We pray that we would take our lives seriously and that we would realize what's at stake. Maybe more is at stake than we even know. We pray that we would uh, use our lives, even if they appear to be small offerings, that you would take our lives like the loaves that the little boy gave to the Lord Jesus and multiply them uh, for your honor and glory. We pray in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.